Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination and tech. I'm an executive producer here at HowStuffWorks. I love all things tech. And typically, I would cover a specific topic at this point, but instead... I'm going to look at a bunch of different topics that have been sent to me over the past several months that perhaps don't merit a full episode, but I could group them together and and actually address them instead of just leaving them to hang in the air or in the ether. So I'm going to take a several, a handful of requests from various listeners to chat about very different topics and kind of give you a quick overview of each one. Some of them, one of them in particular, I will do a full episode on later, but we'll mention that when we get there. First, listener Marcus wrote in and asked if I could cover FidoNet. So uh, for those of you who have been around for a while, you may be familiar with this term. And so Marcus, uh, this is for you. What the heck is FidoNet? Well, from the name, you might think it's a computer network for dogs. And in fact, the logo is an ASCII art image of a dog, but that's not what the network actually is. First, FidoNet is closely related to bulletin board systems, or BBSs. I've talked about these in the past, but let me give a quick summary of what those are, and then we'll get back to FidoNet. Bulletin board systems developed not long after the home computer market got established. If you've listened to my episodes about the early computer days, the home computer days, You know that hobbyists made up a large chunk of the computer-owning population. Many of those hobbyists weren't just interested in getting a new toy or a fancy calculating machine. They wanted to experiment with what they could do with these machines, and they wanted their computer to be able to communicate with other computers. In places like California, there were hobby clubs like the Homebrew Computer Club, but in other places, it could be hard to find someone who shared your interests. It was just difficult to track anyone else down. So what was needed was a means of communication between different machines, even if they were separated by hundreds of miles from each other. These days, we use the Internet to send and retrieve information all across the world through millions of interconnected machines. But back in the late 70s and early 80s, the Internet was still kind of taking shape. It was really young, and it was not accessible to most people. It was pretty much a network connecting some government and academic institutions, and slowly a few other machines were growing and joining the network. And that was about it. The average person didn't have Internet access. Heck, at that time, the average person had no idea that the Internet was even a thing at all. In 1978, a couple of members of the Chicago Area Computer Hobbyists Exchange, also known as CASH, began to experiment with their newsletter archives. They had this crazy idea. Why not use a microcomputer, you know, a personal computer or home computer, to host the newsletter? The computer would have a modem, a dial-up modem that hooks into the telephone line, and members could use their own computers that had dial-up modems to call into the host machine and read the newsletter archives. If this sounds a bit like a rudimentary internet, you're not far off. The internet uses a similar structure with machines acting as servers, serving data to other machines that are acting as clients. With a BBS, the host computer is a server and the user's computer is the client, except this was a one-to-one connection in most cases, not a persistent internet. 
The Cash Club called their hosted system Ward and Randy's Computerized Bulletin Board System, which was frequently shortened to CBBS. Uh, that would later become BBS. This was named after Ward Christensen and Randy Seuss. Those were the two who created this software. They wrote up a report about their idea and how they did it, and a magazine called Byte, B-Y-T-E, ran the story. More hobbyists began to create similar systems on their home machines. Now, over time, these systems became more sophisticated. Programmers began to make hosting software that would allow for more complicated features and operations. By the mid-1980s, a typical BBS could host messages, including a simple version of email. You could log into the host machine, you could look for other members who also used that service, and you could leave them messages. But it was all limited to that host machine. You couldn't leave messages for someone on a different BBS because there was no connection at that point between the two. So a BBS was limited by the host computer and the users were often limited by which BBSs were within their dialing network. So if you wanted to log into a local BBS, it wasn't a big deal. You could do that. You could look at the user list and you'd say, oh, that's my buddy Bill. I'm going to leave Bill a message and you use the hosting service to leave a message for your buddy Bill. Bill, when Bill logs in, can see that he's got a message. He sees it and says, oh, Sally sent me a message and sends a message back to Sally and so on and so forth. If you wanted to log into a different BBS, you had to call a totally different number, the number for that particular machine, and then you would connect into it and you could navigate and leave messages to those users. Some of these BBSs might be in other area codes, as in telephone area codes. And back in those days, you had to pay for long distance. And the rates were dependent upon lots of different things. But it boiled down to the fact that most people weren't willing to spend lots of money to connect to other BBSs. So you were kind of limited in your options. This created an opportunity for programmers and BBS operators. Users loved getting access to files, systems, and games that were on other machines, but they didn't necessarily have the money to dial up for a long-distance call to connect their computer to another one that was across the country. Christensen and Seuss had proposed a way to network BBSs to allow for information exchange, but it was another enthusiast named Tom Jennings who actually made it happen. In 1984, Jennings created a BBS hosting program he called FIDO. This was for computers running on MS-DOS. As MS-DOS was establishing itself as a power player in the home computer space, more BBS operators began to adopt FIDO. And so Jennings added in a little feature in his BBS hosting program. It would let two FIDO BBSs call each other. So as long as they were both running the FIDO software, they could communicate. The call would be automatic, and upon making a connection, the two separate BBSs could exchange data meaning messages in this case, so messages from one user to another. This would effectively allow users from one BBS to send mail to people connecting to the other BBS. So if you, Sally, wanted to send a message to Bill, but Bill was using a different BBS, and your BBS and Bill's BBS were able to talk to each other, suddenly you could do that. When as before, you could only leave messages for the people who logged into your specific BBS. This was revolutionary. 
you were no longer restricted to chatting with people that were only in your own community. It was kind of like opening up a highway between two previously isolated cities. People could come and go and make new connections. And by adding more BBSs to the system, you could increase this even greater, right? You could suddenly leave messages for people at all sorts of different places. Administrators had to figure out a few ways to make the system efficient and reduce costs as much as they could. That included coming up with ways to compress data so it could be sent quickly across dial-up modems. And since exchanges frequently happened between systems that had to call one another over long distance, time was money. So you wanted to cut that time down as much as possible, thus the need for compression strategies. Because the smaller the file, the less time it takes to transmit it across the telephone lines. Phone companies also would charge different rates for long distance at different times of the day, which would lead administrators to try and tweak their systems to connect to one another at the low points of the day, typically in the middle of the night. Although the middle of the night in one place is not the middle of the night in other places, so even that required some tricky work. This meant that you could have technically received a new message, but you weren't able to see it yet. So let's say you've got a friend named Julie. Julie lives across the country, and she writes you a really nice letter on her BBS. You log into your local BBS, but because your system and Julie's system have not yet called each other that day to exchange information, you don't yet see Julie's message. It lives on her native BBS, but has not yet made the transition over to yours. So it would look as if Julie hadn't written you yet, when in fact she had. It's just that the two systems have not synced up yet. At that point, once they did sync, you would see her letter once you checked your mail. So it wasn't quite as seamless as webmail would be later on, but it was still far faster than using something like snail mail. By the early 1990s, FidoNet had 20,000 BBSs or nodes connected to it. By this time, FidoNet could support many different internetworked features. Websites could end up adopting some of the popular features later on, such as message forums. Jeff Rush created a system called Echo Mail in 1986 that was essentially a message board where people could post a message and anyone connected to one of the BBSs on that network could respond to that message. So it could become all sorts of discussions, just like you see on forums and message boards today on the web. FidoNet kept going strong as online service providers like AOL Online showed up later. But once internet access became more common and... Broadband access became a thing. The BBSs saw a steady drop in activity. Many node administrators chose to take their machines offline, or they didn't bother to fix them once the machine broke down. FidoNet still exists to this day, however, with computers still sending information back and forth to each other. It interconnects with the Internet, meaning it's not entirely separate from the network of networks. And that's the general skinny on FidoNet. So we're going to now move on to the next topic. And this one is about agile work environments in general and Scrum in particular. And it's a request from listener Lucian. So if you're a software developer, if you're in that business, you're, you've likely at least heard about agile methodology and agile processes. Or maybe you've gone through the actual process of adopting agile methodology. But for the rest of us, the term might sound a little mystical. So what is agile methodology? Basically, it's just a framework for getting work done. It's a process, if you will, to follow when you're working on developing software. There have been many proposed methods of streamlining the development process so that a development team is making the best use of its time and talent. 
Scrum technically predates the current versions of Agile, but many of the concepts from Scrum have been adopted by the Agile framework. Ikuhiro Nonaka and Hirotaka Takuchi proposed the process in an article in Harvard Business Review back in 1986. They elaborated on the idea over time, likening software development to a game of rugby. Now, in rugby, players try to move a ball down a field into an opponent's end zone, and they can pass the ball back and forth to one another, not not in a forward line, but they can pass it back and forth to one another in an effort to try and get the ball to that end zone. That basic concept plays over to software development in which part of a team or a small team within a team might have control of the project, the ball in other words, for one part of the process before passing it over to another mini team to keep the development moving forward. By the 1990s, this method had taken on the name Scrum, which is also the word for a mass of rugby players trying to gain possession of a ball during a rugby game. If you've ever seen anything that looks like a big huddle in rugby, and it involves both teams, and they're all kind of pushing against each other shoulder to shoulder, that's a Scrum. The development moves forward in phases called sprints, and each sprint can take anywhere between a week to a month or more. There are three big roles within the Scrum methodology, and everyone falls into one of those categories. First, you have the product owner. Now, this is the person who defines what the software is supposed to be, what it can do, what it looks like once it's all finished. The product owner is supposed to think of the software in terms of how the final customer is going to experience that software. Now, that customer might be an average person, or it might be another company, but whatever it is, The product owner is the one who defines what the software is supposed to be able to do. So let's just say that it's a spreadsheet program. The product owner would be the one who has to say, all right, this program has to be able to record and tally long lists of figures and run various operations on those figures. But the product owner probably wouldn't say, also, it should play music and display headlines of breaking news. The product owner sets the expectations for the rest of the team as to what the software should ultimately do at the end of the day. And a good product owner won't make lots of changes to that expectation as the project moves forward. Otherwise, the team will have to deal with the dreaded feature creep. If you listen to the Apple episodes, you heard me talk a lot about feature creep. That's when typically well-meaning but perhaps naive stakeholders add more requirements to an increasingly bloated and complicated project. It also makes it harder to actually make the project work. The more stuff you add to it, the more opportunities there are for stuff to go wrong. Next, you've got your Scrum Master. Now, this should be a totally different person from the product owner. The Scrum Master's job is to run interference for the rest of the team, to smooth out potential obstacles, to make sure the team has the assets they need to get their work done. They're kind of a facilitator. They're also in charge of making sure the team is able to follow the Scrum philosophy, which relies very heavily on self-organization. Now, if you've ever been in a work environment in which self-organization played a big part and you were new to it, you might have experienced some difficulty in adjusting at first. It is something that some people find really challenging. The Scrum Master is supposed to help team members who are feeling a bit lost. The final role is what the majority of the people on any given project fall into, which is the development team. These are the people responsible for creating the product according to the expectations of the product owner. 
Typically, the team works on incremental segments of the development process. Each increment represents a sprint, and they might be implementing a new feature or developing something totally different that's supposed to integrate with the rest of the software later on. It can really depend upon whatever the software development project is. Most projects require several sprints, and each sprint has a predetermined deadline. So when I say sprints take maybe a week to more than a month, that deadline is set ahead of time based upon the assessments of the product owner and the scrum master. They take a look and they say, well, based upon what we need and based upon what our team is able to do, we expect that this part of the project is going to take two weeks. So we're going to set that sprint time for two weeks. Ideally, each sprint ends with a fully developed increment in the product that would be ready to go if it were a fully realized piece of software. So in other words, if you are developing a specific feature for a software program, at the end of that sprint, that feature should be completely done. And if everything else were ready to go, you would say, let's ship today. You're not supposed to have something that's partly finished or it's dependent upon something else. Ideally, it's all self-contained. Each sprint begins with a meeting to define requirements and expectations, and it ends with another meeting to review how the process worked. In addition to those bookend meetings, the development team has a daily scrum, which is a short 15-minute meeting that's meant to review what work has been done already, what work still needs to be done, and what could possibly cause problems in getting work done for that day. So if you say, hey, I, I need to do X, Y, and Z by the end of today, but I can't, or it's going to be hard because of this other thing, the Scrum Master can try and take care of that other thing and remove that obstacle from your path. Then you rinse and repeat until the full project is finished and ready to go. And that's Scrum in a nutshell. There's a lot more that has been said and written about it extensively, and it's not a one-size-fits-all solution to software development. For example, if you've got a team that has a lot of ultra-specialized workers, people who really focus in on a narrow but deep set of software development skills, Scrum probably won't work so well because it's really meant for people who are more general purpose programmers. Uh, they have to be really flexible and be able to move from one thing to another. If you've got someone who's got a kind of a razor sharp focus on a very deep subject, they probably can't be as flexible as other people. And that's not to say that one type of developer is better than another. They both have their uses dependent upon what it is you need to create. Uh, so this particular methodology, while it might be ideal for certain organizations and the types of software they develop, may not work at all for others. And I can tell you, having observed it at first hand, Anytime you implement a new methodology, a new process, there are so many growing pains and so much adjustment that has to happen. And typically, 90% of the people who are going through it hate it when it first starts because change is scary and no one likes to have to do it. Uh, so it's it's one of those things where is it an effective tool? It's completely dependent upon your circumstance. Also, I should add that while there's anecdotal reports about Scrum and agile methodologies improving workflow, there's no empirical evidence necessarily that actually states that these approaches to work are inherently better than others. 
It may just be that it is a way for you to uh, write down how projects get done so that you have a better way of keeping track of it, which has its own value, but it doesn't necessarily mean that this particular approach is going to get things done in a more efficient and uh, cost-effective manner. I've got a lot more to say in this listener grab bag episode, some more subjects to cover. But before I do that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. One of the other requests I received recently was in response to the show I did about the history of clocks. Uh, The request was to talk about atmospheric clocks, a particular type of clock that harnesses physics to keep the clock wound and keeping time properly. And it's pretty cool stuff, so here's to you, climber ZZZ, whomever you may be. First, a quick review. For a mechanical clock to keep time, you need a few elements in place. You need some sort of way to generate the force necessary to turn the hands on the clock's dial. This force should be steady, but it also cannot be constant if we want it to be easy to read the time on the clock. If the hands are constantly in motion, even if they're moving slowly, it's harder to read the time. So there needs to be a method of regulating the movement of the clock pieces to make it simpler and more regular to tell time and to make sure you're you're telling time accurately. Enter the escapement. Now, it sounds like a trap door or something, but an escapement is actually a device that helps regulate the motion of a clock's innards. And there are a lot of different types of escapements, but they all basically do the same thing. They act as a brake for the other parts of a clock, and they release that brake at regular intervals to allow the parts to move and for the hands to progress around the clock dial. So let me explain with an example, and this is one I talked about in that previous episode about the history of clocks. I mentioned that there was a famous water clock tower built in China around the year 1094, which was eight years after they had started building the thing. It took eight years to build it. The inventor of this tower was a genius named Su Song. He used a water wheel to transmit force from flowing water to the clock's mechanisms. Now, imagine that you've got a vertically aligned water wheel, and around the rim of the water wheel are buckets. As water falls from above, it fills the bucket on the furthest edge of the water wheel, and the weight of the filled bucket causes the wheel to rotate. Now, if you didn't have a brake, the wheel would rotate rather haphazardly. Susong knew this, so he built in a simple but effective system. On the opposite side where the water was flowing, he created a weighted lever. On one end of this lever, you would have a, a, a little bit of a weight, and on the other end, it would actually rest against the backside of the bucket opposite the one being filled. If you're having trouble imagining this, draw a circle. Then draw some simple buckets, all facing along the same direction. So let's say we're making the buckets face counterclockwise. So the bucket on the rightmost side of your wheel should be facing upward, open style. The bucket on the leftmost side of the wheel should be faced down. So it's the bottom of the bucket that's toward the top of the circle. The lever would rest against that downward-facing bucket's bottom. It would stop the water wheel from rotating freely. The lever was weighted so that it would only hold back the wheel until the bucket on the other side had a sufficient amount of water in it. At that point, the bucket with water would weigh enough to turn the wheel, lifting the lever up, and the wheel would rotate one position. And as the bucket cleared that lever, after it's lifted it up because it's on a little pivot, 
the lever would fall back down and stop the next downward-facing bucket. And meanwhile, some of the water would slosh out of the bucket that just moved downward, the filled bucket, and there'd be a new bucket in the place of the old one that would be filling up with water, and the whole system would start again. Now, that was the escapement, that lever, because it controlled the rotation of the water wheel. As clockmakers created more sophisticated clocks, the escapement took on other forms, but its purpose remained the same, to create a means to keep the rotation of a clock's inner works regular, according to the divisions of time we humans have arbitrarily set as being meaningful. One other thing that did change was how clockmakers would provide the force necessary to operate the clock. Su Song was using falling water and a water wheel, but most clocks used some other method, such as a wound spring. Winding such a timepiece means you are curling metal ribbon, creating stored energy. So take a piece of metal, cut it into a ribbon, usually use steel, and then you curl that into a coil, and you keep curling the coil tighter and tighter and tighter, the metal ribbon, quote-unquote, wants to return to its natural state of being a straight piece of metal. The spring under tension creates the force that drives the rest of the clock's gears. As it starts to unwind, it provides the energy needed to turn the other gears of the clock. But eventually, this spring, often called a mainspring, will unwind to a point where it no longer can provide the force needed to keep accurate time, which is when you have to wind the clock back up again. If you've ever had a watch that did this, you know what I mean. Like, once a day, you'd wind your watch, which would actually coil this spring tighter so that it would continue to unwind and provide the energy necessary to make everything else move. But what if you came up with a way that didn't require you to wind the clock on a regular basis? What if the clock was somehow able to wind itself using physics? Enter the atmosphere clock, also known as the Atmos. There was a man named Jean-Léon Reuter, who was a Swiss engineer who was living in Paris at the time, who invented the device in 1928. He wanted to create a clock that was self-winding, and to do so, he looked to the weather. Specifically, he figured if he could create a device that depended upon variations in air pressure due to changes in temperature, he could provide the winding motion necessary to keep a clock in good working order. The heart of the Atmos clock is a sealed chamber filled with an expandable fluid or gas. The original patent suggests mercury, but more recent Atmos clocks use gases like ethyl chloride, which boils at 54 degrees Fahrenheit, or a little more than 12 degrees Celsius. It's this gas that provides the force needed to wind the clock. The gas will expand or contract with changes in temperature. Higher temperatures make the gas expand, and lower ones will make it contract to the point where it will condense if you get the gas cold enough. It'll condense into a liquid. The gas will respond to small variations in temperature, which is good because these clocks were meant to be stored indoors where temperature variations are less extreme than they are outside. So... Little changes in temperature can provide enough energy to keep the clock wound for a couple of days in some cases. Expanding gas can do a lot of work, like pushing against stuff. So if you either put something in that sealed chamber to push against, or you make the chamber itself part of a mechanism, so it's kind of like bellows that expand and contract, 
you can leverage that to do useful work. In the case of an Atmos clock, that work involves providing the force necessary to wind the clock's mainspring. So the big trick there is translating this expanding and contracting motion into a winding motion. Now, a typical approach is using a chain attached to a bellows that contains the gas. The other end of the chain is wrapped around a ratcheted component that can wind the spring. If you replace the chain with a knob, you could physically turn the knob and wind the spring that way. Turning one way winds the spring. Turning the opposite way would allow the ratcheted component to keep the existing tension on the spring, but allow the free rotation of the knob. So, in other words, you can't unwind the spring by turning the knob because the ratchet allows you to turn it freely without actually losing any of that tension. Turning it the other way would allow you to actually wind the spring. So you can only turn it one way to affect the spring. So, this chain is under tension on this ratcheted component. You might use a spring attached to the chain that keeps it under this tension. So it's always pulled tight, no matter if the bellows is fully expanded or completely contracted. This pushes, uh, so let's say that the temperature increases. When the temperature increases, the gas inside the bellows will expand. So the bellows moves outward. That would mean that the bellows is quote unquote pushing the chain. Now you can't really push chain or rope, right? If you have a length of rope in front of you and you try and push it, it doesn't really do anything. But if the rope is under tension, as in if there's a weight on the other end of the rope and then you quote unquote push it, what you're really doing is letting out the rope a little bit, right? Same thing works with this particular approach. The chain gets pulled a bit from this tension and the bellows expanding allows the chain to move in that way. This would end up turning the, uh, the ratcheted portion in a way where it was freely rotating. So it's not, it's not winding the spring. It's just rotating so it doesn't unwind. Then when it gets colder, the bellows contract and pull the chain inward. This ends up turning the ratcheted component so that you are winding the mainspring. So every time the temperature goes down, the mainspring gets wound a little bit more. And as it unwinds, it's winding back whenever the temperature drops. It does this over and over and over again. So it keeps that mainspring pretty much under tension consistently. So you don't ever have to wind it by hand. It's being wound by actual physical changes in the environment. It's being wound by changes in air pressure, which in turn is being affected by changes in temperature. It's pretty awesome. The interesting thing to me is that the, in the end result, it looks like the whole thing is winding itself. And at a very casual glance, it almost sounds like it's a perpetual motion device, but that's not the case. Let me explain why, because there's a lot of confusion about the concept of perpetual motion machines. A true perpetual motion device, if such a thing were possible, and spoiler alert, it's not would continue to work once you set it in motion with no need for any external power source. So imagine a pendulum and you start it swinging and it continues to swing indefinitely. It will swing until the heat death of the universe or the surface it is on is destroyed, but it'll continue swinging until something forces it to stop. That would be a perpetual motion machine, but it's also impossible in our world. It would counteract all limitations on the system. So 
the laws of physics as we understand them state such a thing is impossible. If it is, in fact, possible to create a true perpetual motion machine, it would mean that our laws of physics are wrong, that we are incorrect in the way we have formed the laws of physics. But that would also mean that all the observations we have made based upon those laws would need to be readjusted. And we've made a lot of technology that depends upon those laws being true. And the technology works, which seems to be pretty strong evidence to support that those laws, while they may not be comprehensive, are on the right track. Because if science didn't work, we wouldn't have stuff like computers. Technology is essentially science made physical. So, why is perpetual motion impossible? Like, what was it about our laws of physics that state that this is an impossibility? Well, let's look at thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics is about the conservation of energy. Energy cannot be created or destroyed, but it can be converted from one type of energy into another. So, for example, potential energy stored in a wound spring can convert into kinetic energy as it unwinds. But no energy was actually created in that system. It just changed from potential to kinetic. So you didn't create energy. You just kind of translated it. A mechanical object is always going to have to deal with friction. It's always going to have parts that rub against other parts. And friction is this resistance that matter encounters when it moves against other matter. A mechanical system with enough power can overcome friction, but it loses some energy in the form of heat. Now, again, it's not having energy destroyed. Instead, it's that some of the energy that would be used to do mechanical work gets converted over into heat, which can dissipate into the environment. That means that the overall system has lost energy. We just lost it, and that means we can no longer use that energy to continue to do work. So any mechanical system, however well-engineered, will eventually lose enough energy from heat so it will stop working, without external energy being poured back into it, that is. So that's the only way you can counteract that, is to add more energy into the system. And that's what our modern technology does. It draws power from various sources. Some of those sources are physical, like water wheels or windmills. Some of them rely upon electrical sources, like batteries. But all of them require a source of energy to keep things moving because they cannot go perpetually. They have to have that extra boost of juice. There are a lot of free energy machines out there. Such a thing is completely impossible based upon our understanding of the laws of physics. Uh, most of these free energy machines on closer inspection either don't work at all. Actually, when I say most, I should say all. They either don't work at all or it turns out that they were using some other external power source in order to keep going and either the person who created it did not understand what was actually happening, or they're purposefully trying to cover it up in an effort to market something that simply cannot exist. In an Atmos clock, while it might seem like the spring is magically wound over time, the added energy is actually coming from the external environment. Changes in temperature and then air pressure are the key because they create the work necessary to wind the clock. That's your external source of energy. So while it might look like it's all doing this on its own, it's actually reacting to its environment. The environment is the thing that's providing the extra oomph needed to wind the clock. It's pretty awesome. By the way, these Atmos clocks are sought after by clock enthusiasts around the world. And you can get new ones if you've got about six or seven grand on you. 
You can find them on eBay for a few hundred dollars, depending on the make and model and its uh, and what shape it's in. They are incredibly delicate. These clocks they need to be uh, on level surfaces. You're not supposed to handle them too much. You're not supposed to move them around while they're actually working because it can disrupt the workings of the clock. So they're beautiful. They'll keep accurate time for ages because you don't have to wind them, but they are incredibly persnickety. So if you are a clock enthusiast and you want to find something truly special, start looking around for Atmos clocks. If you got, you know, a few hundred, a few hundo, Set aside, or if you're like really rolling in at a few thousand, if you want a new one. Um, also, if you are rolling in it and you want to spend a few thousand on a clock, uh, hey, my birthday's in June. I'm just saying. All right, one more listener request to go before we take another break. This one comes from Sam, who wanted to learn more about tesseracts. So I just talked about physics. Let's talk about super duper crazy physics. Now, you may have heard of the term Tesseract if you're a fan of the Marvel films that have come out over the last few years, or if you read The Wrinkle in Time or A Wrinkle in Time because the characters travel through time and space using Tesseracts, although the ones in that book are different from your typical Tesseract. One of the Infinity Stones in the Marvel Universe, which will play a pretty important part in the next couple of Avengers movies, is in a form that they call the Tesseract. So what the heck is it? Well, first, it's not what Marvel depicts. A Tesseract is technically a four-dimensional object, or at least the three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional object. And really, it's a three-dimensional representation on a two-dimensional medium of a four-dimensional object. But let's explain that in a second. Let's just wrap our heads around this whole idea and review our concept of what a dimension is. So a point, as in a dot, a single point in space, is a zero-dimensional object. There's no dimension to it. It has no height. It has no length. It has no depth. Now, if you take two points and you draw a line between the two points, you now have a one-dimensional object. A line has width or length, depending upon your perspective and frame of reference, but it cannot have both. It has one or the other. It's just got the one dimension, which you can express in units that measure length, such as centimeters or inches or miles or yards or meters or whatever, But that's the measurement we use for length. That is one dimension. It has no area. It has no volume. Next, we get our two-dimensional images. These are your basic geometric figures like squares and circles and triangles. They have height. They have width. But they do not have depth. We can measure these objects not only by how long their individual sides are, or single side as is the case of a circle, but also how much area they cover. If we take a square and we extend the corners back a bit and draw a second square and we connect things up, we we now have a cube. This is a three-dimensional object or a representation of a three-dimensional object. It has height, width, and depth, which means it not just has the width and length and depth. The depth creates uh, the the concept of volume. A three-dimensional object can hold stuff in the real world. It's, It's got volume to it. This is the world in which we live, or at least the world that we can perceive. Our senses allow us to understand three dimensions. Pretty much everything we encounter, with the possible exception of some politicians and celebrities, happens to be three-dimensional. And that was just a snarky joke, because even politicians and celebrities have three dimensions unless they are traditional cartoon characters, in which case 
two dimensions. A tesseract is the three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional object on a two-dimensional medium. We sometimes call these hypercubes. You can actually draw a representation of this. Uh, obviously, it has to obey the rules of our three-dimensional perception, so it's a little tricky. The accepted octacoron figure is made up of eight cubes joined together, which isn't that crazy when you first think about it. After all, a regular cube is bound by six squares. So you take with six squares, you bind them together, you got a cube. Take eight cubes, you bind them together, you get a tesseract. There are three cubes to each edge, which means in total you have 32 edges and 24 squares in one tesseract. A rotating tesseract defies easy explanation. Let's just say it doesn't move the way you'd think it would based off our understanding of three-dimensional objects. You can actually rotate it along two planes simultaneously. There are animations that simulate this. They show tesseracts rotating along these two planes at the same time. And I suggest you look them up to see them because there is no way I can describe what it looks like in words. You kind of have to view it. If you go to even a Wikipedia article on the Tesseract, you can see these things in this kind of animation. Also, these animations of rotation aren't a real representation of four-dimensional rotation because we cannot do that in this particular medium. This isn't that big a deal either when you think about it because you can draw a cube on a two-dimensional sheet of paper. And the cube you draw isn't really three-dimensional. It's a series of lines on a two-dimensional sheet of paper, so it's impossible to be three-dimensional, but it represents a three-dimensional object. Now, Einstein got all relative on us and proposed that the fourth dimension in our universe is time. There are various mathematical models of the universe that follow things like string theory that suggest there may be 11 or 26 dimensions out there, or maybe more. But because of the way we've evolved, we can only directly perceive and understand three spatial dimensions, and we can recognize the passing of time. So I hope that that is an interesting discussion on the Tesseract. It is a fascinating uh, hypercube of a subject, but uh, it, again, really tricky to describe in an audio podcast. So I do recommend you go and look at those animations because they'll break your brain a little bit. All right, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Michaela wrote me and asked if I might do an episode on speakers and headphones. And I might. In fact, I will. I'm going to do a full episode on speakers and headphones and talk about the evolution and development of the technology. It will warrant a full episode. But for now, I'd like to give a brief explanation of how speakers work. And then when I get to the full episode about speakers and headphones, you can listen to me do it again. Or at least give a summary. I, I probably won't go into full detail right here, but I want to give you kind of an overview because it is interesting and it'll be a nice lead into the episode that'll be coming up in the near future. So it helps if we look at the process of recording sound first, since playing sound back is essentially the same process, but reversed. Sound is a physical phenomenon. Sound waves pass through physical media. Like the air. The air is a, is a physical medium. It's got molecules in there. So when you make a sound, molecules in the air vibrate. And this vibration gets passed from some air molecules to the next, to the next, to the next, and it propagates outward. And we often draw sound as moving out in a wave. It kind of moves out almost more like a bubble, but it's in a wave in all directions. 
uh, that it can move through until it loses enough energy where it's no longer really moving anymore. Molecules will vibrate through the medium and pass that vibration along. And if you're close enough to the source of the vibration, if the source of the vibration was strong enough, your ears will pick it up. That's because the air is moving in and out of your ear canals, changing the air pressure slightly due to those vibrations, which in turn essentially pushes and pulls against your tympanic membrane. It's more fair to say it pushes the tympanic membrane in, and then when the pressure is lower than inside the inner ear, the tympanic membrane pushes back out again, rather than say push and pull. But that that's getting kind of into semantics at that point, I think. Anyway, the tympanic membrane is better known as your eardrum. Now that causes some fluid in your inner ear to slosh around a bit, I'm skipping over some stuff like the tiny little bones connected to your eardrum, but ultimately it makes some fluid slosh around and it activates some nerve cells that pick up this sloshing of fluid. It sends electrical impulses to your brain and the gray matter in your skull interprets these electrical impulses as sound. Higher frequency sounds cause the air pressure to fluctuate faster and we perceive these sounds as having a higher pitch. The air pressure level is a sound wave's amplitude, which we register as volume. So the greater the amplitude, the louder the sound. When we record sound, we use a microphone. Inside a typical microphone is a diaphragm. It's a thin layer that's made out of a very flexible material, like very thin plastic. The diaphragm responds to sound waves in a way that's similar to our own tympanic membranes. High pressure pushes the diaphragm in. Lower pressure allows the diaphragm to extend outward. Components in the microphone detect this vibration and convert the physical vibrations into electrical signals. This is a a transducer. A transducer takes uh, these kind of energies from one form and and turns it into an energy of another form, in this case, physical vibration to electric signals. I'll go into more detail about that in the full episode. And then this electrical signal would go on to amplifiers and other components to ultimately head toward either a speaker, so you're broadcasting live straight out, or a recording device or some combination of the two. So a speaker takes this process and effectively reverses it. Basically, it takes an incoming electrical signal and translates that into physical vibrations using a flexible cone called a diaphragm to do it. The diaphragm is attached to a suspension inside the speaker. Uh, the suspension, in turn, is connected to a frame inside the speaker. The whole apparatus of this one part of a component is called a driver. And a speaker can actually have multiple drivers in it. It doesn't have to have just the one. A lot of them do have one or two. And these are the big circular things you're looking at when you're looking at speakers. So the speaker is kind of like the overall structure. The drivers are the individual noise-making devices inside of them. And the uh, vibrations that these these, uh, diaphragms make, these cones, these drivers inside the speakers, that's what's making all the sound. It's just those components vibrating. I have a lot more to say about that process, including the actual mechanisms that cause the drivers to move within a speaker, and spoiler alert, it has to do with magnets in an upcoming episode, but I wanted at least to give the basics now to kind of be a teaser for it. And also because I wanted to thank Michaela for writing in and, and suggesting it, and I didn't want a chance to forget it. Our last request comes from Nathan, who wanted to know more about the site iFixit. 
I-F-I-X-I-T. This site helps both repair professionals and DIY hobbyists understand the components of various pieces of hardware on the market, including stuff like smartphones and game consoles and all sorts of electronics. Typically, it can be really hard to find information on those devices unless you happen to be a licensed professional who essentially gets permission from the respective companies to work and repair their products. iFixit helps reverse this trend of technology becoming progressively more like a black box. A black box piece of technology is one where the hardware is locked away so that you can't really observe how it works. A lot of companies make hardware hard to access. Apple is infamous for this, so that it's very difficult for you to get under the hood and make it do what you want it to do. You might want to hack it so it's doing something it wasn't intended to do. You might just want to repair it. But a lot of companies make it very difficult to do, and they guard the secrets about how these devices work. And iFixit is philosophically opposed to that. It's a crowdsourced approach to teardowns and repairs. The community of users can contribute guides, photo albums, and more to help others work on their gear or someone else's gear if they need to. The site got its start back in 2003. There were a couple of college students who were attending California Polytechnic University, and uh, the two roommates started off by trying to fix an iBook device. There was no reference guide available for the actual computer they were working on, so they rolled up their sleeves, they unscrewed the case, and they started poking around. Eventually, they identified what the problem was, and they were able to fix it. And then they thought, huh, I bet other people are having a similar problem with their devices. What if there were a centralized database of repair information that people could use so that they don't have to either rely on an expensive licensed repairman, or even worse, that they might just throw away a salvageable piece of technology in order to go out and buy a new one? Eventually, their help site evolved into a user-powered community Again, the people are the ones who submit repair guides and photo albums, and they explain step-by-step what every piece inside various technologies is, what it does, how to fix or replace it, and more. On a personal note, I have found iFixit's site to be incredibly helpful whenever I needed to research a particular device to learn about the components inside it. I did it all the time for How Stuff Works articles. If you read some of my old How Stuff Works articles, you'll often see iFixit as one of the sites I source as one of the ones that I used while I was researching the material. Some companies, it turns out, are not very forthcoming about the tech that's inside their products. They might not tell you what kind of graphics processing unit is in their computer or the type of processor that you might find inside a handset. And so the only way to really know for sure if you don't have access to internal company documents is to break one of them open and take a look yourself. Fortunately, that's what the people on iFixit do for you. So you don't have to do it yourself unless you need to in order to fix it, in which case you go to iFixit and you learn how. iFixit teardowns have a ton of different popular gadgets that remove all this mystery, and it also removes the need for me to do it myself, which I greatly appreciate. Although I did once do it for the Nintendo 3DS. We had it for about three days, and then I took it apart. And I took it apart in a way where I can guarantee it'll never work again. It was in a bucket on my desk for a long time, though. Anyway, the philosophy of the founders is that anyone with a desire to learn should be able to maintain his or her technology. It should not be kept apart from us, 
as an almost mystical object that we never fully understand. They want to put the power back in the hands of the users and to help consumers avoid what could become predatory policies. After all, if a company is using proprietary hardware, even down to the types of screws it uses to hold everything together, it is locking the users into an ecosystem whether that's best for the consumer or not. And newsflash it is rarely best for the consumer. It is almost always best for the company. From a business standpoint, you can't really blame companies for doing this. But from a practical standpoint as a consumer, it kind of bites. If you've not checked out iFixit, you should fix that. It gets pretty technical, but it also will help you understand your technology better. And who knows, you might see the opportunity to write a guide all of your own. Well, that does it for this grab bag. I want to thank all of you for sending in requests. I've got tons of requests for full-length episodes that I've started to schedule out. Tari and I looked at the schedule earlier today, and it looks like uh, it looks like I'm pretty much set until mid-June. I'm recording this at the beginning of April 2018, and now I've got through mid-June. Of course, one of those episodes is the upcoming 10th anniversary of Tech Stuff. If you guys have suggestions for topics I should cover on any episode, but in particular, if you have requests for the 10th anniversary, please send them my way. You can send them to my email address. That is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. I would love to hear from you. Don't ask how tech stuff works. I have done that episode at least three times now, so I'm not going to do it for the 10th anniversary. But if you have a suggestion for what should be the 10th anniversary episode of Tech Stuff, I want to hear it. Also, remember, we have an Instagram account. You can follow that and see all sorts of interesting uh, pictures and behind-the-scenes photos and stuff like that. Also, on Wednesdays and Fridays, I record this show. And if you ever want to watch me record it live, you can go to twitch.tv slash techstuff, and you'll be able to watch me mess things up right in front of your face. You can also chat with me and point out when I mess things up and uh, hopefully do it in a way that doesn't make me want to cry because Tari is getting tired of having to hug me after every show. It's exhausting. I'm a very high-maintenance podcaster. You guys, thank you so much for listening. I really look forward to chatting with you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 